Listen to the hyperactive squeals, the mechanical precarity, and the glucose overload of the Gwyn Oak Amusement Park, which in 1960s Baltimore was not all centrifugal motion and perpetual bliss. Amidst chunks of regurgitated cotton candy and puddles of urine pooling in roller coaster seats, this so-called family fun zone was the site of ongoing protests and picketing against racial segregation due to its whites-only admission policy. This fight for integration continued until August 28, 1963, when Sharon Langley, accompanied by her father Charles, became the first African-American child to ride the park's merry-go-round. This particular moment of progress in the civil rights movement was the inspiration behind Tilted Acres, the lopsided and ideologically stunted carnival grounds featured in John Waters' 1988 teeny-bopping satire Hairspray, his first PG-rated film, and what many consider to be his most recognizable and culturally resonant success. Categorized in Rolling Stone as a family movie both the Bradys and the Mansons could adore, Hairspray found Waters mixing prescient social commentary with his trademark garish flair and lifelong love for the distinct idiosyncrasies of Baltimore, creating a wild and enduring combination of towering bouffants, archaic pimple creams, and spirited teenage rebellion. How does Nancy Sinatra, Electroshock Therapy, a novelty 50s dance record called The Stupidity, Cockroach Infestations, and a local television program called The Buddy Dean Show spawn a multi-million dollar Broadway musical? Let's rummage through a pile of discarded aerosol cans to find out. Take out your curlers and put on your finest furs, because this week we are honored to welcome actress, musician, and original Dreamlander. The legendary Mink Stole. I guess there's just two kinds of people, Miss Sandstone. My kind of people and assholes. You must be this tall to ride. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this is pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. It's pure Garbage is presented by Wussy Magazine in collaboration with Out TV and Double Scorpio. Whether getting dicked down after losing a game of dice in a film by Fassbinder, or becoming fully immersed in another riveting episode of Czech Hunter, Double Scorpio will stretch your capacity for the abundant miracles of global cinema. Rated 100% fresh, Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage Episode 6 Miss Baltimore Crabs. Tracy Turnblad. Would you do a pimple cream commercial on camera if Corny asked you to? 
I'd be proud to. Luckily, I've never been cursed with acne, like others. But I realize the devastating effect of skin blemishes on the social life of teenagers. Would you ever swim in an integrated swimming pool? I certainly would, Iggy. I'm a modern kind of girl. I'm all for integration. Aren't you a little fat for the show? That's enough, Amber. I would imagine that many of the home viewers are also pleasantly plump or chunky. Oh, come on. The show's not filmed in CinemaScope. You're out of line, Amber. Courtney, Tammy, can't you see? This girl's a trash can. That's five demerit points. You're suspended from the show today. Pack up your things and go home. That was an excerpt of the toxic and exclusionary atmosphere cultivated by teenage tyrant Amber Von Tussle during her reign as lead dancer on The Corny Collins Show. That is, until Tracy Turnblad, the charming young plus-size rebel played by future daytime talk show maverick Ricky Lake in her debut role, begins to make trouble at the studio with her unconventional beauty and views on integration. The Corny Collins show, like the whitewashed whack-a-moles of Tilted Acres, also stems from a troubled facet of Baltimore history. Melba Scruggs is talking about Buddy Dean, the host of a Baltimore dance show that ran on TV from 1957 to 1964. The show featured only white kids dancing, so Scruggs wrote Dean a letter in the fall of 1958 to tell him that's not fair. I felt that black kids should be allowed to come on the show. So uh, when he got the letter, I, I don't know how long after he called my parent, my mother, but I came home from school one day and she was so excited. She says, Buddy Dean called you, Buddy Dean, he wants you to call him. It was called Negro Day. And they had it once a month after the initial group was appeared. That was my, that was my group. Just four years earlier, the Supreme Court decided the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case that forced integration at schools around the country. Scruggs was one of the black students chosen to integrate Forest Park High School in Northwest Baltimore. I thought we should be on there because we could dance too. <laughs> so that's why I wrote him a letter. And I guess he felt so too, but they never, they never had black and white students dancing together on the show. People picketed outside the WJZ studios where the show was held. Published reports say the station wanted to integrate the show. When Dean took it to a committee of white kids who appeared as regulars, they said no. Their parents wouldn't allow them on the show if that happened. Dean was eventually let go as a way of solving the problem, and the show ended in 1964. So there was a show on, that came on in Baltimore called The Buddy Dean Show. We never got American Bandstand ever. And it was a dance show, and it was on television six days a week, sometimes five hours a day. So these kids were stars in Baltimore. They had hair higher. The boys' pants were tighter. You know, it was more extreme. And so I watched it every day, but it eventually went off the air because it wouldn't integrate. And they actually did have Negro Day, where black kids came on with Fat Daddy, the greatest DJ in Baltimore. Was every Thursday, right? No, it was once a month or every two months. It so, wasn't that good. So right? we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be a good kind of melodrama in a way. And also I wanted the girl that was the star of the show to be a big girl because there was never a girl in the Buddy Dean show that was fat ever, ever, ever. So, uh, and it turned out to be a Trojan horse, this movie that snuck in middle America with all my ideas and nobody, even racists like Hairspray. <laughs> In some ways, this is a black ass film. Uh, in, in some well, ways, it's when I saw you, I was like, "There's another black guy in hairspray." Who, who are you? <laughs> 
But you know, one review of it that was kind of critical said it's a black history film from a white man's viewpoint. It is, definitely. I was Tracy. You know, we used to go down to the black neighborhood and, and the cops, the black cops hated it just as much as the white cops. And they used to stop us because it was straight and gay, rich and poor, white and black teenagers hanging together. All the cops hated us, both sides. And they used to say, this isn't Greenwich Village, you know. During my time cruising the John Waters archives at Wesleyan University, I discovered a 1985 synopsis for the unrealized film Ravenous, with the provisional tagline, They're out there, and they're hungry. Ravenous is described as a comedy horror film dealing with the day fat people take over the world. Set in an all-American small town in Maryland, the local teenagers are the first to fight the growing army of fat liberationists who, unbeknownst to them, are dupes in a communist plot to destroy this great country with cellulite warfare. The skewering of American nationalism, countercultural celebration, and adolescent angst would find roots in both Hairspray and Water's subsequent film, 1990's libidinous rock and roll nostalgia trip, Crybaby. Well, it's about uh, a good girl whose hormones are begging to go bad, and she falls in love with Johnny Depp, and he's the, the drapes, which was a very Baltimore word about what drapes were, guys that were like baggy pants at the top, pegged at the bottom with uh, peacock blue stripes down the side, and big, it's a boy hairdo movie instead of a girl hairdo movie. And, uh, and they were the first peacocks, sort of, and it's them against the squares, which the squares were also in Baltimore. It was not an insult to be a square. It was like being sort of Joe College kind of thing in 1954. And it's sort of a war between them. I think it's the same as all my movies. I think all my movies are, are in some ways the same. Sense of humor is the same. They're always about people that are underdogs that win. They're always about um, unconventional people that, that win. Uh, they're still like that. But it's the same kind of movie. It's a John Waters film. I mean, you, there's puke in it. You'll be happy to know. <laughs> I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because we still have some disentangling to do with Hairspray. Waters' love for quirky regional television commercials perhaps reached its pinnacle here with the following sequence. Fatty, fatty, two by four. Can't get through the dressing room door? Hi, Mr. Pinky, owner of the Hefty Hideaway, 3311 Eastern Avenue. Are you big bone? Got a glandular problem, but you still want the glamour? Don't worry about it. The Hefty Hideaway has got it all. This beautiful ensemble, being modeled by our lovely Tracy, is available in sizes 12 to 26. You heard me right. You need a girdle? We got them. Even got large size shoes for that continental clementine look. Whoa, my darling. All the prices you can afford. Big is beautiful. Hefty Hideaway, Eastern Avenue. You come on in today, you'll be awful glad you did. In this moment, Waters was finally able to pay homage to Mr. Ray, a Baltimore weave specialist whose thick accent and eccentric advertisements had long been the subject of Waters' obsession. Mr. Ray curtly declined making an appearance in Pink Flamingos, leading Waters himself to imitate Mr. Ray's singular cadence to announce the filthiest people alive. Ladies, there's no need to hide your hair anymore. You can have long, beautiful, natural-looking hair with a hair weave from Mr. Ray. We weave 100% human hair to your hair quickly and easily. You can style it, sleep in it, even shampoo it. Let Mr. Ray give you softer, sexier hair today. Call 466-4200 now or visit Mr. Ray in Baltimore for the best hair weave at the lowest price in town. 
Waters also pays tribute to vintage bug spray commercials by fully embracing the creepy crawly motif with Tracy Turnblad's iconic pink cockroach gown and her triumphant insect stomping dance. Raid here! Raid! Raid! Crawling on the ground or flying overhead, Raid hunts bugs down like radar and kills them dead. Get Raid. House and Garden Bug Killer. Hairspray sported an impressive ensemble cast, including Queen of R&B and pioneering recording artist Ruth Brown as Motormouth Maybell. No matter what you've heard, we are gonna teach the white children how to do the bird. Comedy legend Jerry Stiller as Wilbur Turnblad, with appearances from Pia Sidora and Rick Ocasek as frenzied beatniks reciting Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Let's do some reefer. We'll get high and I'll iron the chick's hair. After petting the lyrics for the polyester theme song, Debbie Harry returns to portray the fascist former beauty queen Velma Von Tussle. You know, if your father is forced to integrate Tilted Acres, we're out of business. So at least act white on television. And Divine, in a callback to female trouble, plays dual roles as Tracy's kind but long-suffering mother Edna and his racist television station owner Arvin Hodgepile. Now, I've got nothing but hampers of ironing to do, and my diet pill is wearing off. Before this cast was solidified, Lou Reed, Nancy Sinatra, Etta James, and Marianne Faithful were all considered for roles in the film. At Wesleyan, I found records from New Line Cinema detailing potential ad copy for Hairspray, including The Family That Sprays Together, Stays Together, and 1962 Baltimore, When Nothing But Their Hair Was Perfect. Let's talk about the new movie now. Okay. Now, I think this would be great. They're calling this John Waters' crossover film. This is your breakthrough into mainstream cinema. Well, who knows? Cinema. Uh, it's, it's certainly, the only shocking thing I can do is make a PG movie, which it is. It's called Hairspray, and it mm -hmm. comes out in February. It's about, uh, it takes place in 1962 Baltimore, when kids couldn't decide whether they wanted to dance their lives away to these gimmick dances, uh -huh. like the bug. Have you ever seen that when you get no. a disease and you go like that, and then you, on a beat you throw it to the other person, uh -huh. and then they have it? Or kill that roach where you go squish, squash, and then you spray your partner. These yeah. are real dances or throw caution to the wind and join the integration movement that had started at the time. Now, is this a big budget deal? For or? me, I knew it was a big budget the day it rained and somebody handed me a new raincoat and I thought, ooh, we have a big budget yeah, this time. Yeah. It was two and a half million for me, that's two and like, half million, yeah. like Cleopatra budget. Yeah, right? but still by, by Hollywood standards, I guess two and a half million is just a, a spit in the bucket. Yeah, yeah. So, but you're accustomed to working literally like uh, 30, 40,000, you get a feature film well, out of it, Well, polyester right? was 300,000. 300,000. This, this yeah. one, uh, Cost a lot more, but there's 1,100 people in it. Yeah, yeah. And it was Screen Actors Guild, so it was hard to do. Uh, I think it would be great if this movie turns out to be the runaway hit of the decade. Oh, me too. Yeah, that know? would be a I lot mean, of fun. <laughs> yeah. Indeed, Hairspray would prove to be a critical and commercial success, nominated for eight Independent Spirit Awards and the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Its legacy would live on after it was adapted into a globally acclaimed Broadway musical, which won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, in 2003. The warm reception to Hairspray would be tragically overshadowed by Divine's untimely death merely three weeks after the film had its nationwide release. At the time of his death, Divine had become a prolific high-energy disco artist and was beginning to garner a reputation as a talented character actor both in and out of drag. The evening before he was supposed to appear on the popular television series Married with Children, he died in his sleep at the age of 42 of heart failure.
Hundreds of mourners gathered at his funeral to pay their respects, and a wreath was sent by Whoopi Goldberg bearing the remark, see what happens when you get good reviews. Let me ask you to describe in your own words the two roles that you play in Hairspray. Uh, well, I think uh, one is Edna Turnblad is a loving uh, mother and adoring wife, and uh, uh, vice versa. And she has a child that wants to break into um, a dance program on television. At first, she's a bit leery, but then realizes that, uh, in her words, she could be one of the Rockettes. So uh, she thinks this is great and gets behind her 100% and becomes her ma agent and manager. Then I also play a, a part of um, an Arvin Hodgepile, who is a racist, sexist pig, and uh, he owns a television studio. And he's just a hideous person. So it was um, great to play, because unlike any other characters I've ever done. Are you glad that you played a dual role, that you played a female and a male role, so that you're seen as, as a character actor who's capable of performing in both both roles? Definitely. I think it's the cliche Hollywood story of being typecast, and, I, and I'm definitely a, definitely a victim of that. But uh, I think I, I'm very lucky that I'm starting to come out of it. It's taken 20-some years. Like I said, I'm screaming at people, I'm not a transvestite, I'm not a drag queen, I'm a character actor. I never set out in the beginning, beginning of my career just to play female roles. But um, fortunately, or unfortunately for me, they were the only things that were offered to me. They were written for me, which is, which is uh, unbelievable to have that done. And they were uh, the leads of the movies. So you don't go around turning down parts that are the, the leads or that are written for you if, if you're a young actor. Um, I had no idea, though, that they would be such strong characters that people thought that was all I could do. Let's talk about your roles in Hairspray. A part of the movie is uh, about hairdos, about the great teased, <laughs> bouffant hairdos of, of the early 60s. And I know John Waters is really enamored with those old hairdos. Um, you used to be a hairdresser, didn't you? Well, for a very short time, I'm glad I had that experience. It's come in uh, very helpful now. Because <laughs> when I'm on the road and things during my club act, um, there aren't always hairdressers available or, or uh, things, so uh, I end up having to do it myself. And I said, I'm glad I know how to tease because that's definitely the look they want. Uh, but I said to John, he doesn't have to go too far from his front door, actually, to still see women that look just like that. When I was doing the film, it was very funny because the first day on the set, I walked down the street. No one looked at me twice. I walked right through the camera crew past John and kept going, and none of them looked at me. I came back and stood right in front of John. He looked at me, and he did a double take. It was very funny. He said, I can't believe that's perfect. <laughs> so um, I looked just like one of the girls on the street. How did that make you feel? Oh, it was good. I mean, that was the best compliment. I mean, I did fit right in. I did look exactly the way uh, I was supposed to. And um, Because so often, um, with my size and things, I'm so... Um, what's the word? You know, I'm not uptight, but... Um, about sticking out too much. Self-conscious? Yeah, self-conscious. Yeah, about sticking out too much or being the largest person on the set. But then, in a way, that's the best thing to do, I guess. You'd notice more. Writer, actress, and longtime Dreamlander Cookie Mueller would die from AIDS-related complications only a year later. For their interview in Shock Value, when asked by Waters what he would be doing if he weren't in show business, Divine resolutely replies, I never gave it a thought. I want to continue what I do until I drop dead or somebody shoots me. All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. 
Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. This week, it is my distinct honor and perverse privilege to welcome actress, musician, and legendary dreamlander Mink Stoll aboard the Degenerate Express. Mink Stoll has appeared in every one of John Waters' feature-length films. As the depraved rival filthmonger Connie Marble in Pink Flamingos, the inconsolable problem child Taffy Davenport in Female Trouble, the mentally disturbed suburbanite Peggy Gravel in Desperate Living, and the perpetually gaslit Dottie Hinkle in Serial Mom. Please give a warm and furry welcome to Mink Stoll. You know, we started with nothing. You know, we started, uh, the first movie I made with John was eight millimeter black and white slash color. Um, it was triple projected. You need three eight millimeter projectors and a tape recorder to show it. You know, so we started it was so bare bones and then went to, you know, 16 millimeter black and white, no sound, 16, and then to 16 millimeter sound, and then to 16 millimeter color sound. You know, I mean, we worked our way up from, you know, the beginning of film practically, mm -hmm. you know, silent to, to, um, to the big screen, silent to, you know, whatever it is now that they made, 32, 36, you know, so any innovation, you know, was, was a novelty and food was a good one. Next is like the CGI epic yeah. Marvel Universe, <laughs> John Waters Metaverse. I kind of don't think that's going to happen, but I will not speak for John. Well, you know, it's weird. I was traveling in Europe. I had a boyfriend with a motorcycle and we decided to go to Europe for six months and we were traveling all over. And back in those days, uh, you would pick up mail at various cities at the American Express office. Mm -hmm. Sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? It does. Yes, you stop in an American Express and pick up your mail. And in, I think we were in either, I think we were in Barcelona and I went to American Express and I picked up and there was this package from John and he was a wonderful correspondent. I always had a letter from John wherever I, where, wherever I was picking up mail, I always had a letter from John. There was this package, you know, this manila envelope, and I thought, oh, great, it's a script for Flamingos Forever. I'm so excited because I knew it was in the works, and then I opened it up, and it just broke my heart. It was obituaries of Edith Massey. And it was just, she had been so beloved, and there were so many obituaries, and I just was, was weeping. And interestingly enough, Pink Flamingos was playing in the city. And it was in Spanish with uh, English subtitles. And so I went, and that was how I got to actually sort of say goodbye to Edith in my own way, because I couldn't be, obviously I was you know, in Europe, so I couldn't be at the funeral, but you know, so I got to say goodbye to Edith in Barcelona, in a movie theater, watching her work. But that was, you know, that was the death of Flamingos Forever. Yeah. That sounds faded in a way that you got to spend that time with her. It was really interesting, yeah. It, w it was kind of great. And I, I asked for the poster, and they gave it to me. And I gave it to John. Flamencos Rosas. <laughs> we can do the uh, Almodovar remake. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> I'm sure that would be Flamingos great. Flamingos on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Oh, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. With the gazpacho. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, we can talk about either. I mean, I, I was my personal favorite is is Desperate Living. Like that's a film that's always been really important to me. And like, hi, stupid, hi, <laughs> ugly. She was really fun in that movie. I think she had a really good time. You know, she got carried around. She got to. I don't think she ever was completely understanding what she was doing. I mean, she knew she was making movies and she loved it. She had a wonderful time and she loved being famous. As a matter of fact, she thought that everybody knew who she was. I mean, she would wave to strangers on the street just assuming that they'd seen her in a movie. Mm. You know, she's being carried around on a pallet by these, uh, we call them the goons, by her goon squad. You know, one of the secrets to, to the way John's movies work and the fact that they do actually work is we all completely committed to the absurdity. We committed mm. to the reality of whatever was going on. But I don't think she consciously committed to it as much as some of the rest of us did. She just did it. You know, I spent so much of my early film career with John being the one who was the asshole. And, you know, I would end up dead, <laughs> justifiably dead. So I got to live in Hairspray, I actually got to stay alive through the end of the film, and was and I was on the right side, and I liked that. It was it was good. I liked the movie. My favorite scene in the film, though, is there's a scene where there's a um, African American man drinking out of a bottle, walking down an alley, singing, and he's singing um, "Nothing Takes the Place of You." And it's just this beautiful moment in the movie. And then a rat runs across Ricky Lake's foot. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's, it's my favorite moment in the movie. And those are, at the, in the opening credits of Desperate Living, those are my hands cutting the rat. And it stank. I mean, it was an actual cooked rat. Vincent Peranio and his uh, wife, Dolores Deluxe. Vincent was the production designer. So, yeah, they cooked it. You know, most of us, at, in the very beginning, we were all living at home. We all lived with our parents. Um, John would sort of drive around and pick everybody up, and we'd go and we'd do whatever it was we were doing, and at the end of the day, he'd drive everybody home. And if we were lucky, um, there might be a, a run to a sub shop for lunch. Uh, you know, but we were, we were very young. We liked each other a lot. We didn't spend all of our time together. You know, we weren't a commune. Uh, but we liked each other, and we enjoyed what we were doing. And the, the thing that uh, was really important for people to know is we were incredibly professional. We always knew our lines. You know, we would show, if we had lines, we would show up, we would know our lines. We would be there, we would be camera ready. I mean, in the early days we were doing, I mean, I did my own makeup through Pink Flamingos. I did my own hair and makeup and wardrobe for Pink Flamingos. Um, Van Smith came on the scene then and, and did Divines. But before that, uh, I, I think maybe David Lockery was doing Divines makeup in Multiple Maniacs, but you know, we were doing our own stuff because there, there, we didn't have crews. You know, we didn't have trailers, we didn't have crews, so it was all very pitch in. You know, we all pitched in. John was absolutely the leader, but we all cared very much about doing a good job. You know, it was very important to all of us to do a good job, so we did. You know, we, we came prepared and um, mostly uncomplaining. 
Well, I did hear, I remember listening to an interview of you throwing a saxophone at some point. I'm curious well, about that. I used to get really annoyed because when we were making Pink Flamingos, you know, John and I lived together in the house mm -hmm. that, the, that the Marbles lived in. And I would, I would get annoyed because scenes would get filmed and then John would leave and there'd be this big mess. And I, you know, I didn't have to get fussy about it. But I did, because, you know, I was a little bit bratty. I actually do not have a recollection of this, but John swears that I threw a saxophone down the stairs at him, and I believe him. And it wasn't a working saxophone. I don't even remember where. It would, somebody had given it to me, and it, was, it didn't work. But it was big. John has an innate authority. He is not a bully. He has a confidence and an authority that is just there. He will ask people to do things, and they will say yes. You know, all we were asked to do was learn our lines and show up. You know, sometimes we'd have to do wardrobe or some, you know, we'd have to do other various things to do with our characters. But I wasn't asked to provide, war, you know, props or, uh, you know, decorate. I wasn't asked to do all that. There, there, you know, John made sure all of that happened so that the actors were just actors. And... So, you know, when you, when you have the authority and you're also taking the, he not only had the authority, he took the responsibility. So it was easy to do what he wanted. He, you know, I mean, it was just, it, that, it wasn't a problem. I don't think it was an issue. It wasn't an issue for me. I mean, I hated having to clean up, <laughs> but that, but after Pink Flamingos, I didn't have to. So, and I didn't even have to on Pink Flamingos. I just choose to be pissy about it. I just chose to be pissy about it. But it was, you know, he had the authority and the responsibility, and he carried them all. He carried it all. So, and still does. You know, John can still ask me to do stuff, and I'll say yes. We had, of course, no idea back then that 50 years after making Pink Flamingos, anybody would give a damn about it. The fact that they do is staggering to me. I mean, it's incredibly gratifying. It makes me very proud and very humble and all sorts of, you know, emotions swirl around about it. One moment that I remember, I was uh, getting ready to play. We were doing Multiple Maniacs, and I have several parts in that movie. And one of the parts that I play is a straight person who goes to see the cavalcade of perversion. And I came down, I was living with my mom, I came downstairs, and I had on this little curly blonde wig with a headband and a little dress with cap sleeve, you know, a little puff sleeve dress. And my mother looked at me and she goes, oh, honey, you look so pretty. Why don't you look like that all the time? And I'm like, <laughs> because, you know, so, you know, so she knew what I was doing. She, it was... My mother adored John. He could make her laugh, and she just thought he was fabulous, but she was not happy with what we were doing. It's not that I think the films are, are particularly political, but there is a rejection. There is absolutely a rejection of, of, the, of what was going on at the time. You know, all times are tumultuous. I wonder what the young people of today are going to do with what's going on now. You know, what, what kind of work there is going to come out of all of this? Because, you know, what's going on now is really scary. Makes me, makes me not sorry I'm old, mm -hmm. which is a weird feeling, you know, because I may not be here to see the end of the world, and you might. <laughs> you know? so, I probably won't. The, I will probably be dead before the seas rise and take over L.A.
<laughs> before the ocean comes in and washes away my home. <laughs> I will probably be dead before that happens. You know, but there are kids today who might not be, and, and this, is, this frightens me. So, uh, you know, I mean, I re like I said, I had rejected my Catholic upbringing, and I had, was rejecting. I grew up in a middle-class suburb of Baltimore, you know, and, and I grew up, you know, knee highs and cardigan sweaters that and they had to match and they had to be a certain brand. You know, I mean, all of these things were so desperately important in the neighborhood that I lived in. And um, it never really worked for me. So I was re rejecting that. And, you know, just, so yeah, so societal norms, we were all rejecting societal norms, but I didn't realize, um, I wasn't really specifically going, I hate capitalism, because I didn't know enough to hate capitalism at that time. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of concurrent movements happening in like queer performance scenes, like with, I know that you, you were involved in some way with the Coquettes at a certain point. Uh, yes, back in the 70s, uh, in the very early 70s, after Pink Flamingos, I went to California, I went to San Francisco. Uh, Divine had already worked with the Coquettes, and I did a sh couple of shows with them. Uh, I was part of the amazing Vice Palace, which was a wonderful and incredible production that we did. And um, I did a couple of other little shows with the Coquettes, and I loved them. They were just, my first glimpse of the Coquettes was a group of them, and I don't remember exactly where it was, I just remember Scrub, Scrumbly, Scrumbly Coldwin, who was, was, had a beard and glitter in his beard, and he was holding a sign that said, Save Soviet Jewelry. <laughs> that just cracked me up. <laughs> I mean, the irreverence of them. You know, the freedom, the irreverence, the spontaneity that they had. They, they were very different from us. Mm -hmm. You know, we were all very ordered. You know, we had scripts, and we followed direction, and we did not ad lib. You know, I mean, we were a very different group of performers. You were shoot and take acid after they were. They were the take other acid and go. <laughs> no, we we never did drugs on the set. Huh. There were there were no drugs or alcohol on the set. No, that that was we did plenty of we did plenty of drugs, but not at work. So um, yeah, so it was it was a very they were much looser. You know, I told um, Sweet Pam wrote a book called Midnight at the Palace. And I told her, and she, she quoted me in the book, I said, we came from a, a no environment. No, you can't do that, you must do this, with John. And uh, I mean, what he was telling us to do was great, but they came from a very yes, you know, what, sure, do that, do that. I wasn't accustomed to that kind of looseness. That, that, that kind of freedom is, is kind of scary when you haven't had it. They're the yes and school of improv, and you were the no but. You exactly, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, and I was going to ask, like, so Pink Flamingos was screening in, like, porn or cult theaters at the time when it first came out, right? I don't remember that it screened in porn theaters. Gotcha. I don't remember that. Um, it, it was a midnight show in New York. I was never there for that. I, I missed all of that. I was in San Francisco. And actually, when it opened in San Francisco... Uh, I went, a lot of people that I know were there, or, or that I knew then were there, and I, after the movie was over, I had not seen it. It was the first time I'd seen it. I was the only person in the movie that was there. And I'm out, I'm in the lobby, and people are coming out to me, and they're going, 
It was good. Um, You were really good. You know, nobody knew what to say to me after seeing it. And, you know, I mean, I had seen most of it anyway because I'd been on the set for most of the, you know, for so many of the scenes. So I knew what I was in for. But the the end scene, the last scene, did make me gag. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it took a while for it to reach hit status to reach cult status in San Francisco, which surprised me in a way because they were already fans of John's. Mm-hmm. You know, there had already been multiple maniacs and Mondo Trasho in San Francisco who, to some success. So it, it surprised me that it took a while for Pink Flamingos to catch on. It did. did it I catch like in? your blue hair. Oh, thanks so much. You know, David, yeah. David Lockery and I were, I believe, the very first people ever to be on screen with Unnatural hair color. I was going to ask, how long did you rock the red after production? Uh, for about a year. Yeah. Um, it was too hard, and it was it was, yeah, it was it was tough to keep up, and I stopped wanting to look that freakish. But you know, I mean, David had to. We didn't have party colors. You couldn't go to the drugstore and buy you know hair chalk. David used we. David did my hair. He did. He bleached it white. And then I took red ink that you would buy at a stationery store. It came in a, in a uh, diamond-shaped dark blue bottle. It was called Quink. And um, accountants would use it. It was red ink. You know, use, it was fountain pen ink. Use and it to, for typos. For exa- well, for debits. <sighs> you know, you, you put your pluses in, in black ink and your losses in red ink. I love the color of loss as a hairstyle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah losses, right. <laughs> but anyway, so I would bleach my hair. David would bleach my hair out to, to, you know, completely white. And then I would mix this red ink with shampoo. And that's how I would color my hair. And David was using the inside of a blue magic marker. Bleached his hair and used the inside of a blue magic marker to get that blue color. So we had to work at it. Oh, Cookie was like a weird sister to me. You know, I, I met her in somewhere in 67 or 60. I forget, you know, I just felt like I always knew her. Uh, she won a contest where, you know, she, she came to one of, one of the movies. And John, John, you know, would have contests where you could win a pound of ground beef or a, you know, a dinner at, dinner at um, some, you know, hamburger joint. I, Harry Littles, or I forget, um, and she won, <laughs> and so that's you know that's how we met her. And she just came in and was just, she was so amazing. I mean, she looked like Janis Joplin, you know. She had this incredible look with this long hair and the bracelets, and and um, she her life was so different from mine. And you know, I mean, she she was a hard living woman. She was a she lived much harder and faster than I did. I I. I no, not only couldn't keep up with her, I had no desire to try because it was just too much. But, but I loved her. There were times, some of my favorite times with Cookie, you know, I would spend summers in Provincetown. Actually, she and Susan Lowe and I shared a, a little house in Provincetown one summer. And I was the only one of the three of us that had a job. I worked in a toy store, really difficult. Um, But I would come home from work, and Susan and Cookie would be sitting in the kitchen, drinking from a jug of wine and tattooing themselves, you know, with with just a needle and ink. They would be tattooing their hands. 
she was fun, and she, she had... We would go, but in Provincetown, we would ride our bikes out on the bike trails out in the dunes. And I remember one day we, we went out and we were reading to each other from Dracula and sketching. And, you know, she could draw really well. I don't draw very well, but she could. And, you know, but we would sketch together and read. And she was just, she was just so much life in Cookie. There was just, I mean, she burnt out way too early. Peaches is another person that when he asks me, I say yes. Peaches used to have a show called um, Midnight Mass. He ran a movie theater in San Francisco, and for 10 weeks in the summer, he would run a midnight, he would screen a movie at midnight on Saturday nights, and he would write and produce and perform a pre-show to the film. And I was his very first celebrity guest. And I, we, neither of us can remember when it was. It was, he was showing uh, Desperate Living, and I walked into the theater, and I fell in love with him. We hadn't met before, but I was completely in love with him. There was a banner across the stage that went, Hail Mink, and there was an animatronic Peggy Gravel stirring a vat of rabies potion on the stage. And I just went, I don't know who you are, but I love you. And it was amazing. So, you know, and we did an interview and the audience. And, and it was really great for me. It actually changed my life because up until that point, I had always been the supporting character. I had always been, you know, oh, yes, and there's Mink. And this was the first time that I was ever treated like I was the star. And I liked it. <laughs> I have to tell you, I really, really liked it. All hail Mink. Next time on Pure Garbage, we will meet crybabies. There's nothing the matter with my face. I got character. Cereal moms. Hello? Is this a cocksucker residence? God damn you, stop calling here. Isn't this 4215 pussy way? Unlikely art stars, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Oh, I was blinded by the blue of Mary's cloak when I was just seven years old. I've been praying to her ever since. Sure's paid off, hasn't it? And disgraced Hollywood actresses pushed to the brink. Joining us will be the Duke of Dirt, the Sultan of Sleaze, the Prince of Puke, the Baron of Bad Taste himself, Mr. John Waters. And then they'd have sex, lesbians and gay men together. And it would be a new strain of heterosexuality. I'm your regional filth correspondent, and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this has been pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. Kamikaze Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors OutTV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. 
Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure garbage.